Thank you so much, Beth and worship team. I got it, thanks. I apologize if my voice is a little uh, hoarse this morning. I, I was at the Chicago Bears Broncos preseason game last night. I'll just say one more thing. I've been a fan of orange and blue my entire life. That's all I'm going to say. <clears throat> pastor Greg Groeschel, he's a well-known pastor in the United States. And uh, he was uh, relating a story um, in a book that he wrote of, it was one day of travel, but he took uh, two different planes and uh, he met two different people uh, next to him. The first person that he met was Travis. Travis was a little bit older, uh, wife and kids. Uh, he was in business and he was an atheist. Uh, Travis, um, uh, Craig, Pastor Craig Groeschel writes, he was, um, he was kind of the conventional sort of atheists of an atheist. He denied the existence of God altogether. He didn't pray. He didn't read the Bible. Didn't attend church. The only thing he liked about Christianity was poking fun at television preachers, as we all do from time to time. He made himself laugh out loud as he affected this thick, syrupy accent. Craig writes, I don't believe in God. Right? He was mocking. On a second flight, Pastor Craig met uh, a young adult named Michelle, and she was a young grad student, and uh, they were talking, and uh, he was trying his best not to tell her that he was the pastor, but eventually, um, he, if you're a pastor, you know why, um, but um, eventually, it, it spilled out that he was a pastor, and uh, she began to say, it says this, she began to change her words and she started to throw in some God sayings. God told me and God is good. She smiled softly, described how she gave her life to Jesus at age 15 at a Christian youth camp. After praying sincerely, she was eager to get back to school to share her faith and live a life of purity and spiritual integrity. Michelle held on to her new belief in God but soon slipped back into her old way of life. As if in a confessional, Michelle continued pouring out her life's more darker details. She looked down as she admitted that she was doing things with her live-in boyfriend that she knew she shouldn't. She told me she wanted to go to church but was simply too busy working and studying. She did pray many nights, mostly that her boyfriend would become a Christian, like she was. If only he believed in Jesus, then he might want to marry me, she said, wiping her tears. At last, Michelle expressed one final confession. I know my life doesn't look like a Christian's life should look, but I do believe in God. And then Pastor Craig writes this, welcome to Christian atheism where people believe in God, but live as if he doesn't exist. As much as I don't want to admit it, I see this kind of atheism in myself, Pastor Craig writes. 
People might assume that a pastor might, wouldn't struggle with any form of atheism, but I certainly do. Sadly, Christian atheism is everywhere. There has to be a better way to live. This book, by anyone courageous enough to admit to their, is for anyone courageous enough to admit to their, and he uses a good word here, hypocrisy. That this idea, this concept is good for anyone who's willing to admit to any form of hypocrisy. I'd have to say I dislike hypocrisy more than just about anything else in this world, especially in God's church. Right? There's a, a definition of hypocrisy, and it's this. The practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. Did you know that when uh, non-Christians are interviewed, primarily why they don't go to church and why they don't believe in God, do you know what the number one answer is? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Exactly right. They see it. We see it everywhere. Um, you, you open the, the newspaper. Not many of you open newspapers. You, what, you open the, new, the news. <laughs> you watch it. And you see it is rampant. The, the, the 300 priests that are now from Pennsylvania accused of sexual abuse thousands upon thousands of children. The devil won in so many circumstances. You see pastors and leaders, the headlines uh, of confessions, of accusations, uh, of sexual impropriety. So often it churns my stomach. The only thing that I hate more than hypocrisy in the church is hypocrisy in my own heart. I see it. I see it. You can call it hypocrisy, you can call it Christian atheism, you can call it rebellion, you can call it being two-faced, but it's, it's there. It, it's part, unfortunately, of our fallen human nature. In fact, David, King David, <clears throat> who was known, does anyone know what was the title that, that David was known by? He was a... Man after God's own heart. Would that be like the most incredible title to have, right? And yet what else is he known for? Bathsheba. And that sin and that confession. And David would, would say this in, in the classic Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And then he goes on in the Psalm and says this. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother 
conceived me. I thought, David, a man after God's own heart, is there anyone whom hypocrisy does not tinge at least the very corners of our lives, if not take root deeply? I would say Jesus is the only one. Last week, Pastor Dave listened to the message. I really enjoyed some of the ways that he built, I would say, a foundation for Nehemiah 9. And and I wanted this morning to build off of uh, what Pastor Dave shared from Nehemiah 9. If you would, would you turn with me there? Because Nehemiah 9 is in some ways a climactic chapter that contains this beautiful and incredible prayer. If you've brought your own Bibles, wonderful, continue to bring them, or your apps, Bible apps, Um, or there's Bibles located in the seats in front of you, you can find that, use the table of contents, Nehemiah can be hard to find, but we are in Nehemiah chapter 9, and you'll see as you turn there... I say it's somewhat climactic because in just a few couple of chapters ago, they finally finished the wall. Yes, but the book kept going. And we realized that sometimes, what? The thing is not the thing. Right? And here we thought that the book of Nehemiah was about building the wall when in fact it was not building the wall. It was about building, restoring, healing God's people and their testimony about him and their relationship with him as a community of people. So the book continues, they build the wall, but then they call the sacred assembly and they begin to read the word of God for for six hours standing there. They hear that and they begin weeping and the leaders say, no, 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 this is a time of joy. And they discover God's truth again in their lives. They begin to live that in joy. They discover that the timing was for the the feast of booths. So for, for a week, they, they live in booths and they have this feast, this celebration together. They live in community. And then they come together in Nehemiah 9. And it's a time of confession. And, and they share, and if you look at Nehemiah 9, it's about the longest chapter in the book, as it should be. And this is the time to get real before God. And we're gonna do something a little bit different this morning. I am, I really didn't want to preach on confession without confessing to you. And I also don't want you to hear a sermon on confession without being afforded the opportunity to confess. So we're going to have an open mic. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. Maybe an evening service, all right? We don't have that much time. Yes, Micah. Um, but what we're going to do is, I'm just going to, it's such a long prayer, and, and we have parameter of time. So I'm, I'm going to be strict about the six hours that I'm allowing myself. No, no, no. We're going to just read a portion of that. 
And as we read, I'm going to share just briefly my confessional response to these verses. And then I'm going to give you a few moments. Actually, in the bulletin, there's, there's some blank space if you'd like to write. If you don't want your neighbor to read what you write, you don't have to write anything. You can just be right there with the soul. But we're going to give you a few opportunities of confession. Do, do you want to do that? Does that? Confession is a vital part of the Christian life. And if we don't address the seeds of hypocrisy, I would argue every day that I don't care who you are, those seeds will grow. And it becomes a habit and a culture and then the enemy wins because he burns you down. So right now, we're addressing seeds of Christian atheism, seeds of hypocrisy. So as I read, I, I want you to think about this. Pastor Dave shared last week that confession is simply agreeing with God that he is right. Right? about my, uh, let's say, my sexual practices. Can I get real? No. Do I agree with my culture and what it says about my sexual practices? Or do I agree with God? Do I agree with what my own flesh says it would really, really like to be right? Or do I agree with God's revelation? It's an interesting definition of confession. What the Israelites do in this long chapter is they talk a lot about who God is. And based on who God is, they've failed to live in response to the character of God. Nehemiah 9, they have sackcloth, ashes on their forehead, the priests and the Levites are involved. We're, we're starting in the latter part at the prayer, um, and we're going to read verse starting 5. Blessed be your glorious name. Now pay attention to who God is. Blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, who is God, even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You, God, give life to everything and the multitude of heavens worship you. It's a glorious description and praise of who really God is. You are the Lord God who chose Abram, brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, I, maybe I said that wrong, Jebusites, Boy, Girgashites, uh, you 
have kept your promise because you are righteous. So now get the dynamic of who is God. All of a sudden, they say, you, God, are creator of all things. Everything that's in the heavens, on the earth, in the the seas, everything. You're this great and awesome and big God. And yet, at the same time, you are a personal God. You made this covenant. A covenant is like a marriage. And you came to Abraham and you chose him. You walked with him personally. And now we know it's not just the Jewish people. It's not just Abraham. It's all Christians in the new covenant. We get to walk in this covenant personal relationship with God. That's who God is. He is creator and yet he's personal. Here's the question to ask. Does your life reflect that God is God of all creation and yet is available in a personal relationship with you and I? Does your life reflect this God whom we just read about? I would say that the times that I'm aware of my Christian atheism most is when I'm walking in anxiety. And I am struggling and wrestling with any, it it, it can be uh, in relationships, it can be ministry and church, and and I'm filled with anxiety and that I can't sleep at night. And I just had another leader uh, say to me again, he said, now remember, God's on the throne. And I realized that I was not living my life in the reality, in the faith, in the belief that God is on the throne, that he is in control, that he has things for, uh, for me. He knows what's going on. We just, uh, uh, Luke, my, my oldest son, just drove back to, uh, to college, Springfield, Missouri, and uh, staying connected to him. And you know how we can be anxious about our own relationships? There's this interesting dynamic as a parent. You can also wrestle with being anxious about your kids' relationships. Can anyone relate to that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you, so you got, so his best buddy uh, isn't returning, which I, I'm really bummed about. And, and what if he gets a new best buddy that is really unhealthy for him? It happens in college. What if he meets the wrong girl? Right? And faces those temptations. I begin to lose a little bit of sleep along those lines. Boy, I really wish that God was big enough to minister in Springfield, Missouri. I really wish he knew my son like I know my son. <laughs> do, do you see the, the inconsistency there? Yeah. You see that? Yeah. The, other, the other side of it is 
the most incredible thing about the Christian faith is that every day we get to say, hi, God. What do you have for me today? We get to like personally engage the the one true living God. We get to engage with someone that knows us better than we know ourselves. And what do we do? Get in the shower, we get breakfast, we're kids off to school and to work. It's like we don't get to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Here's my confession Forgive me, Father, when I live in, live in anxiety instead of peace. Forgive me for the times when I live like you are a far away God instead of being a close by God. It's one of my confessions this morning. Would you take a few moments? You can close your eyes just in prayer. You can um, jot down if you, you've got a pen. Would you think about that in any way? Now remember, Christian confession is not about shame or guilt. Amen. It's about conviction and forgiveness. So don't come before the Lord in shame. Maybe you need to pray through that and say, God, please don't let me do this in shame. I want to do this in forgiveness. I'm going to give you just 60 seconds, a minute. Hear this promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That means you. I'm going to read that one more time. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. This is not about the severity of your sin. This is about the greatness and the faithfulness of God. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen. Amen. Returning to Nehemiah chapter 9, if you would look at verse 9, 
they go on and they tell a little bit of the history of Israel and the remembering how God it was faithful in their history and, and they're bringing it into today, okay? You saw, verse 9, you saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. He's confessing. Now jump down to 16 and 17. The people are confessing. But... So God heard their cries when they were enslaved in Egypt. As they were fleeing the Egyptians, he saw the arrogance of the Egyptians, the sin, the enslavement. He heard the cries. He brought them out of Egypt, eventually into the promised land. And then verse 16, but they, our ancestors, when life was good, I've inserted that in the scripture, because arrogant, because they became arrogant and stiff-necked and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember, failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. Talking about the desert when they were afraid. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. So who is God in this particular circumstance? They're naming, they're confessing who God is and they're saying, God, you are a God who sees suffering and sin. You are a God who sees suffering and sin. And the question is, do I live My life is my perception of the world. Does flowing from my mouth, the words that I use, reflect that I worship a God who sees suffering and sin? When I am suffering or I see others, I do it less often than I did 10 years ago. But I can easily fall into, God, what is the deal? Is this how you treat your children? Am I the only one who falls into that? In the midst of suffering. And I can have what I think is righteous anger. When in fact, at its heart, is unrighteous anger. Towards God. Incredibly, God allows us to pray that way and doesn't strike us down. (laughs) At least He hasn't yet for me. What should be a part of our struggle and our suffering? That part of our suffering 
especially as we get older, is that we should remember how God showed up in our times of pain and difficulty and struggle and even, even suffering. That should be at the heart. That's, um, that is what um, Israel was doing right here. They were saying, we remember when we cried out in Egypt. We remember when we were in the desert. We remember when you showed up. And in fact, they had rebuilt the wall. They're in Jerusalem, but they're still under the rule and reign of another king. They're still giving their goods. And so they're confessing. So they're saying, help us God in this circumstance. Now is the end of the prayer. Should read the whole prayer, maybe this afternoon or tomorrow morning. Um, But they say, help us now in this situation. But we remember, God, when we cried out in the past, we remembered how you showed up. You saw our suffering. You heard our cry. We remember. I'm assuming that most of you are on Facebook. And uh, memories come up on Facebook. Yes? Yeah, is not most of you on Facebook? I didn't. Okay, there we go. Thank you. And, uh, and uh, one of the congregational members sent me a memory and it was uh, the anniversary of when uh, my kids were recovered after they had been taken, taken away. And I was able to remember the most devastating moments, times in my life that was suffering for me. I was able to mention to my kids that when they were away, I, I still remember jogging and praying past the middle school and saying, Lord, they were in grade school. I didn't know if it ever returned to Colorado, I said, Lord, would you let them graduate from this middle school? I remember when my wife, Kendra, and stepdaughter Paige, we were doing our loop for exercising. Kendra and I were jogging, and, and Paige was on her little scooter, and we came on the hill on Dublin and I saw the most magnificent rainbow. And I felt like the Spirit of God said at that moment, I got this. I will bring them home. Trust me. I, I had such an impression that I shared that with, with Kendra and Paige. Paige still remembers that, that moment. I would love to say that I'm better at this. When I'm struggling in the present, I would love to say on a regular basis, I go back to how God showed up. But I'm not there yet. I'm pretty pretty inconsistent, I'd have to say, when it comes to that. Now, on the other side, we're talking about the absence 
when we're, we have the absence of suffering and life is pretty good, do you know what the human tendency is? Is to begin believing that our little personal sin doesn't matter to God. That's the other side. And we begin to compromise and we begin to water seeds of sin in our own soul. Like he hasn't told us that he cares about it. That ongoing, that nagging sin. That he hasn't warned us that if those seeds of sin blossom and grow, they will take over your life. And you will not live the life Jesus secured on the cross for us. Here's my confession. Forgive me, Father, for the times I've judged you as indifferent to suffering. Forgive me when I've lived in sin as if it doesn't matter. Would you take a few moments, whatever connects with your heart and soul, perhaps a perspective of suffering, a failure to remember, perhaps a nagging sin. I'll give you 60 seconds. David in Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. David is known not only for Bathsheba, but also known for receiving and believing God's forgiveness and restoration and grace. Nehemiah 9, look at verse 19. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness, the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from the mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. 
Who is God? They are saying that they are confessing God is a God who gives instruction. God is a God who gives provision. Recalling this time in the desert that the Holy Spirit, that same Holy Spirit that he gives today, that is at work dynamically in your life today, he gave them, he instructed them, he provided for them. The, the Christian faith holds that the scriptures are not simply some holy book written thousands of years ago. But they, the Christian faith holds that the actual words that we hold in our hands is the revelation of the one true living God. And that as we read, not only do we read the revelation of the one true living God, but amazingly he provides his Holy Spirit to enter into the details, the words of his word. And he takes it and applies it upon our soul. And he, he ministers to us in that way. And yet so often there is a neglect that is part of that where we see the testimony is that his instruction, his counsel, his wisdom is available to us each and every day. And yet we're going after other instruction, other counsel, other wisdom. Not, not that all other counsel and wisdom is wrong or off, right? Some of it can be very good. Some of it can be really bad. But so often we go to friends. We go to self-help help books. We go to Google. And we seek help rather than going to a God who is a God who wants to actively instruct us in our lives. He wants his voice to be more predominant in our lives than any other voice in this world. And he not only provides instruction, he gives provision of all of life. As we seek his instruction, he provides for what we need. And yet that is contrary to the fallen human condition See, if you can relate to this. Again, I see it in my own soul. We constantly want what we don't have. We constantly want what we don't have. And then when we get what we haven't had, what do we do? We don't want it anymore. Or we want more. Yes? Yeah? And there's this striving dynamic. Some of you have probably heard the story of the high-powered man who's driving from the airport to the big city. He stops at a little rural gas station that still has the, the practice of letting the attendant come out to the gas pump. 
And the guy is in a hurry and the attendant hasn't come yet. He starts laying on his horn, laying on his horn. Finally, the, the attendant shuffles out and, and he says, hey, why are you in such a hurry? Life is too short. He said, no, no, no. I have four appointments to get to. I have to get to all four of these and return to the airport. He's like, why are, are you living at such a, a rapid pace? He said, because I, I want to retire early so I can fish and golf and spend time with the family. And the attendant said, well, I do that now. We're in that pace of striving and gaining and going after. And we're missing the provision that God is wanting to lay before us. We're going past it. And we're saying more. Here's my confession. Forgive me, Spirit, when I've turned my back on your instruction and guidance. And forgive me when I've been dissatisfied with your provision. Would you take 60 seconds to confess? The Apostle Paul says in Titus, but when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of our righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, who he is. He saved, sozoed, he, he saved through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Are you guys tired of confessing? This is the only time you're ever going to hear this probably from any pulpit. But I have a bonus confession. Should I skip the bonus confession or should I go for it? Go a little bit deeper? All right. This one's a little bit harder to understand. I wrestled with this one. I was tempted to skip it, honestly. But we'll go here. All right. Verse 25. Bonus confession. Here we go. Okay. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. This is talking about the, the people of God, Israel, enter into the promised land and they take it and they beat. And listen to how God, he, he not only gives them victory, but then they enter into the good life. You could call it the abundant life. They captured fortified cities and fertile lands. They took possession of the houses filled with all kinds of good things. 
wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They uh, reveled in your great goodness. Who is God? He is a God who loves to lavish his abundance because he has a great goodness. But, there's always a but when it comes to human nature, right? But, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. Are you seeing the theme? They turned their backs on your law. Instruction again. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. That's why they were exiled. God is a God of both. This is an interesting dynamic and I want you to try and hold this in your mind with me. A God of abundance and judgment. Abundance and judgment. Let's unpack abundance briefly. Continue to read this beautiful book by Dallas Willard, Life Without Lack. If I were to ask you the question, could you give me the three top things that you lack in your life in this moment? What are those three things? Think about it for just a moment. I find it easy to answer that. Do you find that easy answer? I can list some things. All right. If God's kingdom life for us is a life that does not lack in anything, and I can so easily name what I lack, what gives? What gives? Let me try to explain. Stay with me. Remember, this is a bonus confession. Some of you might not get it, but we're all we're gonna go for it. Think of abundance in both spiritual terms and material terms. Dallas Willard is arguing that every one of us, that God is in abundance, both spiritually and physically. If you neglect materially, if you neglect one or the other, you're missing the heart of God, okay? All right, now, but think of it this way. Every morning when you get up, in the morning, there is a spiritual abundance available to us that we can tap into every morning. He has promised that we lack no good thing. And we see the character of God for his children when they are tapping into that spiritual abundance of God's truth, of God's grace, of God's mercy, of God's community and companionship and fellowship and goodness and life. When we tap into all that God has for us, you know what God does? He bubbles over that abundance into material abundance. That's what he did for Israel. That's what we see in the New Testament. And here's the problem. Here's where we miss it. Here's where we live hypocritically is we go after the material abundance. 
because we feel that we lack so much. And we're living in a spiritual poverty here. Did that there? Was it, were you with me? Spiritual and material abundance. And he's saying, listen, I've provided all for you. It's right there, your life, right there. But you're going after all of this. I'll take care of that. Jesus said, why are you worrying? Why are you going after here or there? You can't add an inch to your height. You, you can't do any of that. that the, the, your heavenly father knows you need all those things. He delights in blessing you with all of that. Stop it. Go after this. My kingdom and my righteousness, a right relationship. The father is a father of abundance. He will do all those other things. And then one last thing, how you bring that into judgment. Again, we live as if we will not have to give an account of our lives to God. We live as if he does not bless those who are faithful. So here's my confession. Forgive me, Jesus, when I have lived an impoverished life in the midst of your abundance. Forgive me, Jesus, when I've lacked reverence and humility before you. How about you? Would you take just a moment, as you take just a moment, I'd like to invite the elders up for communion. as we go to enter his table of forgiveness, of healing, of restoration, would you hear these words from David from his famous psalm of confession? Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Father, I pray against any guilt or shame that still is present 
in any of our hearts and souls. Lord, we know that is not from you, but the enemy, and we bind the enemy. And Lord, we pray that you would release a joy in us of forgiveness, a joy of confession, a joy of renewal, of we are clean, Lord. We are right before you. We get to walk with you, Lord. Lord, as we come to the table of this amazing sacrifice of your son, we remember the joy that was set before him in the forgiveness of our sin. We have stations for each section at the appropriate time. If you would exit your section to your right, come to the station where we're taking communion by intinction, where that means you take the cracker, which is the physical symbol of Jesus' body, you dip it into the juice, which is the physical symbol of Jesus' blood, and then you take it and then return to your seat. If there's further prayer that you want to do, this is the time to do that. If you're moved to pray for a brother or sister that's sitting down the row or maybe in a, the section next to you, would you take this time to pray to them? It was the night in which Jesus was betrayed. He took the bread after he blessed it. He broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in a similar way, after dinner, he took the cup and he talked of the new covenant. He said, this is a new relationship. Now we have a new standing before God not one of condemnation, not one that we are tinged by our sin, but one of confession and forgiveness and renewal and restoration. We get to stand before him as forgiven children. No matter what you did last night, we get to stand before him as forgiven children. All is ready. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, would you come?